0: Habits and Health, episode 69. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Wingard. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health, the podcast where we give you ideas to create new habits to improve your health. And my guest today is Elizabeth Gasson-Hargreaves. She's a functional medicine practitioner and a registered nutritional therapist and 15 years ago her son was given less than 24 hours to live unless he received some vital antibiotics and they saved his life and he was only six weeks old at the time after he did manage to recover it changed elizabeth's whole career development and she started to get more and more into looking into the microbiome and what was it that caused it in the first place and it led her on a journey of discovery And so we talk a lot more about that and about functional medicine and many other areas. So that's coming up. So if you know anyone who would get some real value from this episode, please do share the episode with them and hope you enjoy this week's show. Habits and health. My guest today is Elizabeth Gasson-Hargreaves. How are you, Elizabeth?
1: I'm very well. How
0: are you? I'm pretty good. And you're so far away from me because you're in Bath, aren't you? You're near Bath.
1: I'm a bit south of Bath. I'm in a place called Bruton, which is just outside a town called Wincanton.
0: Are you from that region?
1: No, I'm originally from um, the Midlands area, actually, between Nottingham and Leicester. And and then I married my husband, who was in the army, a military man, and travelled around every two years with him. And then we decided Somerset was going to be our home. Don't know how, but we sort of made the decision within two weeks. Wow. And decided this is where we're going to put ourselves.
0: How long have you been there now?
1: We've been here seven years, so yeah, it's starting to feel like home.
0: from a work perspective, you're a functional medicine practitioner.
1: It's um, evolved into, yeah, started as a nutritional therapist and then just did functional medicine training. But prior to that, I was really interested in the microbiome and really wanted to know how I could use what was becoming my passion as a career, really. So that's the
0: route. Why did that become a passion? What was it about that that attracted you to it in the first place?
1: Well, it was probably through one of my children, mainly, uh, my second child, Charlie. He was born by C-section, and during C-sections, they liked to take the baby out two weeks before. And he went straight into SCABOO because he had breathing difficulties. And he got over that pretty well. We got him home. And then about four weeks later, I could tell something wasn't right. And interestingly, it was a very gut-reactive instinct that recognized that this child, things weren't going well. And I took him to the doctors and, you know, sometimes they're very busy and they weren't particularly interested. The receptionist wasn't interested, but I persevered in that sort of knowing. And anyway, we ended up in hospital and an amazing pediatrician, as she was walking past, just happened to notice he had like a mottled skin and she just grabbed me, grabbed him pushed us straight into a room. And then before I knew it, there was lumbar punctures going on and he'd been diagnosed with bacterial meningitis. We were really lucky and due to antibiotics and the treatment and living in the UK and all of those sorts of things, which meant that he he survived that process and without fortunately any problems. And it was sort of subsequent to that that I started to reflect on what was it about Charlie? What had made him vulnerable? Mm And I previously understood certain things about the microbiome. I'd understood how C-sections could affect and implicate the lack of diversity in the microbiome and it really just into that space and into ensuring that I could help his health going forward. And then funnily enough, I've got four children and it's just fabulous what they sort of teach you really, but with Charlie in particular, I noticed that nine months he would eat, you know, those omega three capsules that supplements, he would eat them almost like there were sweets. And I was fascinated with what was this, almost his fundamental instinct in that requirement. You know, they they taste pretty awful. So I was intrigued by things like that. He did have an anaphylaxis shock to to eggs when he was about nine or 10 months. And again, with the sort of knowledge thinking, okay, so he's going to be crawling around and picking everything up and putting it into his mouth. Do I want to be the parent that is continuously living in fear of a child putting something into their mouth? And so learning about the digestive tract, learning about the immune system that exists within that digestive tract, I, I felt that actually maybe we could over time start to give him pastures. Eggs in things like, you know, a small bit of biscuit or something that had a, you know, would have had a pastured egg in. And we, or pasteurized eggs, sorry. And then, so yeah, started rather than withdrawing more and more foods, int- introducing more and more foods, introducing that diversity. So yeah, unfortunately, you know, he's 15 now and as far as I know hasn't had any reaction to any other foods. No allergies, nothing that can seem that he has had any bad health. So, yeah, still learning. And there's many rabbit holes to go down with uh, all of this. But, yeah, it's fascinating.
0: As you you explore that particular rabbit hole, is that then what led you to study nutrition?
1: Yeah, I was really interested in the microbiome, the gut microbiome. And I... um, met a girl in 2013 and she and I had both just read um, a book that had just been published called Gut, and it was both she and I had you know had previously been engaged in that area and then with this lady and it's awful I can't remember her name I'll, I'll remind you at the end we both started to work together on something called Wonder Gut, which was about fermented foods and trying to encourage people to look after their diverse microbiomes and therefore the gut brain axis back then i suppose and both she and i found ourselves slightly frustrated with how we were going to progress to work in this area and felt that we both needed a qualification she went off and did sort of herbalist she's incredibly bright joe is i think she did a degree and a masters at the same time and whereas i went and down the sort of nutrition path and and studied with cnm for four years so yeah and that's me now
0: so but once you started working in helping people with nutrition what what then made you want to take that further and and study functional medicine so
1: i've done some uh nutrigenomics whilst i was studying which is the study of nutrition around uh, genes and again i was slightly conflicted knowing how the microbiome is almost master of the genes. But I, I did find it fascinating, did find it interesting. And I liked the role of functional medicine and some of the tests that they were able to use. And yeah, just again, I just wanted to carry on my studies, really.
0: I think at this point, for anyone listening, it's maybe unclear what is the microbiome and also maybe what is functional medicine. Could you explain both of them?
1: Yeah. So the microbiome, I'm sure many people have heard about it by now. It's the trillions of bacteria that live in and around and on you. The majority live in the gut, in the large intestine. You've got about a kilogram of um, microbes that live there and they are essentially integral in messaging with your immune system. They are messaging around the gut and the brain. And they they produce many neurotransmitters, things like tryptophan, which moves to serotonin. They can also uh, produce GABA, short-chain uh, fatty acids, which help to feed your um, mucosal membrane within your gut brain. But the majority of them and well, where we're really interested in them is the large intestine because that's where we have probably about a kilogram of, of microbes there and they're constantly sending signals they're essentially symbiotic these microbes the majority of them they send messages to your brain via many channels one channel is your vagus nerve which is the longest cranial nerve in your body they also eat the food that's in your digestive tract in the large intestine and they metabolize foods from that from them called metabolites like propionate, acetate, or butyrate. And these help the microbes will then feed your enteric nervous cells. So there's no difference really from what we've heard from for years about eating in moderation, and doctors have said for years that we need to increase fiber. and it is these fibrous foods that help to feed these gut microbes. And it's fascinating because I I get really interested in very old books. I've got a couple here at the moment, but it, it seemed that up until the 1900s, the gut and the constitutional health of people was seemingly still asked about. It was, in fact, it was part of the consultation process with your GP. And in a lot of books I have, there's, with any ailments, it will ask, it will talk about the diet. And I suppose at some stage, it became a bit more reductionist, science did, you know, the, we moved into these specialisms. And at that point, we started focusing on, you know, psychiatry alone, or gastroenterology on its own. And so what seemed to happen, I think, really, from around the 1920s was that, these things started to separate and rather than your GP ever asking you about your bowel movements, we just stopped asking. And now I I believe you can, if you even say you're not going to the loo for five days, then it's not necessarily deemed a problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas for a functional practitioner like myself, I would be really listening to something like that and be trying to ascertain what was going on.
0: And when you say about a, a functional practitioner so could you just also just briefly explain what, what is functional medicine? Why, why is it different?
1: So functional medicine is the way I try to look at it is thinking about when you look at a tree. Mm-hmm. And when you look at a tree, we can be looking at the tree trunk and look at all the leaves and the branches. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's an entire system going on and, and with all the root structures. Mm-hmm. And... I liken that to a person that when you look at, rather than looking at a symptom, let's say that the uh, the leaf of a tree is diseased, we right. might be looking rather than just at what's happening in that area, like uh, many practitioners would, we'd be looking at the root systems to see, okay, what's occurring elsewhere? Mm. How has this got to this position? Mm. So it, it's the same with, people i I think interestingly high cholesterol could be one of those it can be a symptom and people have high cholesterol maybe on a test Mm. but i'd want to know okay so if you've got high cholesterol what's the underlying cause of that Mm. yes okay it might be a lot of people would say well that's because you're consuming too much cholesterol but i tend to see cholesterol is almost like the just a fire engine at a fire it, it's there because what's going on and, and the inflammation around it. Yeah. It isn't necessarily the cause of the fire. Yeah. yeah. And see if so, that makes any sense. Yeah,
0: I've specialized in the kind of brain. And you're, I forgot, that. what's the name of your clinic? It's the gut brain.
1: It's a gut brain practitioner. And yeah, and it's funny because whilst it sounds as if it's a specialist area, I actually coined the gut brain phraseology on the sense that really more to do with the gut-brain reaction that I had in terms of that deep sense of knowing that I think people have often forgotten about. So it had a two-pronged attack in terms of how the gut-brain is understood. And whilst it is a sort of a specialist area, I actually try as hard as possible not to specialize in terms of, I almost look, rather than looking down and in, which is quite useful, I almost want to sometimes look up and out and see the bigger picture and find out more what's going on. And I I do really feel for any GPs at the moment because to try and understand what's going on with someone in a five-minute window Mm. and then only being able to give a... A drug to deal with that symptom Mm. when you don't always have the full picture as to what else is going on Mm. i think it's amazing but i also really do feel for how difficult that is as a practitioner
0: well that makes me think because one other area that a functional medicine practitioner differs quite substantially from a general practitioner is one that you spend so much more time with the client it's typically it's what an hour or more plus the client will typically fill in many different forms, so you're aware of all sorts of areas of their history, that GP just doesn't have the time to be able to look.
1: No, and even with all the records and the way AI is going in terms of recording all of that, there's so much that you could potentially miss just by looking at data. And yeah, my initial consultations are at least 90 minutes. They do sometimes go over that. And then on top of that, if I've got any follow-up questions, I I have the ability to take the time to go and find out a bit more. The tests are much more in depth, depending on which test we do. And I don't tend to test everyone right at the beginning. From my perspective, I really like to work on diet and digestion first, actually. So try to change those pathways before we start really looking at tests to seeing if things are going on at a more in-depth level. But of course, it's also a a client relationship. So if a client would wish to have more information and and, uh, testing can sometimes lead people to really being goal-led, then I will... Do testing earlier, but ordinarily I start to work from improving digestion first, and then seeing and and talking about food in general, because there's so much confusion out there with food. This, you know, whether it's you know vegan diets, whether it's paleo diets, you know, and I, I from my perspective, I feel as though a lot of the time some of the points, some of the main points, are missing, which is where coming up and out and looking at the bigger picture and looking at how food is grown what sort what's the soil the food is grown in and I know we only talked very briefly about the microbiome but of course it's hugely impacted by antibiotics and sometimes by the pesticides on food and anything that impacts the gut bacteria can impact your health so yeah it's Rather than looking at isolated foods or an isolated diet, it's really trying to understand how those foods are grown. And as I previously pointed out as well, sort of diversity is really key. And historically, I think we would have eaten a um, much more diverse diet because of seasonality. And we did also preserve our foods and preserve foods... It turns out these fermented foods are essentially preserved by using various bacteria or certain bacteria thrive in these foods. And it's these bacteria that then can have a relationship with or another symbiotic relationship with us by essentially producing serotonin and tryptophan that goes down to serotonin. And that, of course, as we well know, can improve mood. So there's many links back to food and and the way we preserve it, the way we, how we buy it, where it comes from. That's probably more interesting to me than being specific about only eating this way or that way.
0: One of the things that happens with the whole kind of functional medicine world is You do typically, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you do typically get people to on that initial consultation to give you as much of their history about their medical history, even from when they were a small child and maybe even their parents' history and so on. And I imagine a lot of people are confused. Why do you need all that information? What would you answer them? Why do you need so much information from so long ago, maybe?
1: Well, it's twofold really, because as I mentioned, things like antibiotics can be, particularly in the first couple of years of life, can be instrumental in a sort of dysfunctional HPA axis, which is the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis, which is essentially your stress response. And of course, anything like a stress response can have an impact with cortisol levels and therefore your propensity towards depression and things like that or anxiety. So something like that might be of interest. You know, if, if someone's has been born by C-section, again, maybe missing serious key microbes at early start in life. Any trauma, often people with trauma think of these really big things, but actually a lot of little traumas over someone's life can significantly impact their gut, largely because every time we go into... Uh, a heightened stress response. Because we're in fight or flight rather than rest or digest, then all of the key um, enzymes around digestion will shift. And of course, that has knock-on effects throughout the rest of the body. Mm. I'm interested in really learning as much about someone as possible, and that is on a psychological level as well as a physiological level. Mm. So sometimes I'll be asking, going down various routes, I'll find out all kinds of things that a lot of clients will probably think, why are we going here? Why are we looking into this crevice? But it's really key and it's really interesting to then sort of uh, tend to do a timeline and and then look back along this timeline to see where certain triggers may have caused a slight imbalance, which then might have knocked on to another, either a trauma or another, potentially a diagnosis of something else. I'm keen to know about any operations that anyone's ever had in the past or the medications that they may have taken. Because again, you know, some things like PPIs can be really useful for a short period of time, but over a long period of time can actually cause some upset that might need to be dealt with in a different way to someone who hasn't taken a PPI, for instance. So uh, I, I try to take a, as in-depth background as possible.
0: And your page often quite surprised that when you've gone down these rabbit holes of asking them so much information about their history and their, their family history and so on, and how you've then been able to help with an issue that, as far as they're concerned, it's just come on in the last few weeks.
1: Yeah, I sometimes find it's interesting that that they suddenly the light bulb moments that people suddenly realise oh from, you know when when you raise these things it, it can be quite interesting. So yeah, that's it, it can be quite useful and it's also quite useful because I think when clients have a history of wanting to go to a doctor's and take essentially a pill for an ill and want to be immediately cured, which is essentially how we've grown through medicine you know we're ill we've got a headache we want to take a brief and we want to be well again we want to go back to work we don't want to take time to recover and so it can be quite tricky to the the patience, i guess of a client to recognize that it might take some time but what's useful sometimes is if you can map out and show how long this thing has started to take hold Mm particularly if it's a chronic disease, Mm -hmm. then they can see that, okay, so it's taken this long to occur. Mm -hmm. So therefore it might take some time to get better, but it will get better. What would be of all the the clients in,
0: is there a condition, illness, whatever that comes up Time the most frequent condition that you come across with your patients?
1: I actually think it's anxiety. A lot of anxiety, particularly my most of my clients are, are female, and I think there's a certain time and age or an age group of women where anxiety is cropping up more and more. There's obviously a, a hormonal link to that, and uh, there's a huge play going on with the microbiome, there's something called the Estrebolone, which is essentially the oestrogen that can recirculate in the digestive tract. So I tend to see a lot of clients with some form of anxiety and that obviously can knock on to things like IBS, I suppose.
0: You touched upon androgenomics um, uh, before, how does that help? You help, help a client.
1: We all have these what's called SNPs, they're single nucleotide polymorphisms that are held within your DNA. But they're almost like lights switches that can be switched on or off with environmental factors such as the microbiome. Mm. But knowing that you have a propensity to something can mean that, on the nutrition side, we can put more support in place. So, for instance, we can sometimes require more B vitamins with certain SNPs, and we might choose to do something different hormonally. There's a really great thing that I do value that Nordic labs run through something called med checks, and actually are quite like that in terms of recognizing if clients need to access medications, that certain medications will work better for some people than other medications. It all tends to be based around the CYP P450 enzymes, which are liver enzymes, and how you process the metabolism of drugs, essentially. It's also quite interesting, particularly for women who are going your perimenopausal and might want to go on something like HRT, understanding something called compt which is their ability to... Uh, Metabolize oestrogen and oestrogen, a lot of people just hear oestrogen and progesterone think it's relatively simple, but there are three pathways with oestrogen and the way of metabolizing it can be quite, can be more dangerous for some than others, depending on how it's being metabolized. So for some women, we wouldn't want to give synthetic hormones if they're not able to detoxify them properly, because that can then potentially promote breast cancer and things like that so I think it's really interesting to know for yourself some of your um, genetic snips I am a little um, wary of because of all our data analysis now lots I can see that AI is amazing to having all this information taking all this information and sort of recognizing what it would mean for an individual which can really move on to personal medicine at the moment i think it's something that should be very much held with the patient or not patient or the client depending on whether you're in a clinical or with with a nutritional therapist i I think it's more important that that's kept private so that you know for yourself but the data itself anonymously could be used to find out all kinds of things i think Mm. in the future We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits & Health podcast, where we believe that creating healthy habits should be easy. If you know a friend or a loved one who might be interested in learning simple habits to improve their health, then please share this podcast with them. We also invite you to subscribe and to leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. Now, back to the show.
0: There's a number of companies now offering these genetic tests, and they the, the person just sends in a, a sample of DNA from the mouth swab or whatever and then they just send them back a report and it seems to me it's pretty unhelpful I mean do you have any views on that
1: so there are companies like 23 and Me and things like that and I think they can be interesting as some of the information that's sent back they don't always report on the significant nutraceutical sides of things mm. and as I said, I don't really know how that information is captured and I don't know how it's held. So mm. personally, for me, I, I tend to try and want to work with labs that I know aren't collecting data anonymously. Mm. But that's maybe that's just my cynicism over mm. certain things. So
0: people think organic um, food is just more expensive and there's no real reason to have it and pesticides aren't really that bad. But what is it about organic food that is so helpful to our microbiome?
1: From my perspective, again, looking up and out, it's not just important to us as to how we're digesting it and how the microbes are reacting to it on the inside in terms of our human health. But it's really important soil. I think we've all seen very dried up fields that then become the surface runoff of the water is is horrific and, and causes flooding and a lot of that is to do with the soil health and if we keep if we keep overly used pesticides or glyphosate in the way that we do which essentially kills the microbes within the soil and the life within the soil if we kill life within that soil we stop enabling it to to thrive really and therefore whilst in the short term it can help with growing crops and having greater yield, I think now it's been well understood that over time, actually yields start to fall. So whilst I'm I'm not saying things have to be organic, because again, there's tick boxes around organic growing. And I think farmers find it really difficult to suddenly convert to those organic practices. But I think there's a recognition around regenerative farming, which is essentially almost like, crop rotation and ensuring that we don't continually grow in monocultures, which are essentially, you know, one big field of the same crop in the same way that we want our diets internally to be diverse, it would be useful to grow on our soil in the same way, have diverse crops. And I I think many years ago, we had smaller farms and that enabled people to have animals and arable crops growing together. But over time, it became really difficult for farmers to make any money doing that. And of course, then we had supermarkets, which putting their margin in. So whilst I don't want to do supermarkets any disservice, rather than buying organic even, I'd suggest that, you know, trying to use farmers markets more and trying to buy seasonally, knowing some of the crops that are heavily sprayed and those that aren't, Interestingly, a lot of the wheat crops tend to be heavily sprayed really to, they can sometimes be dried using glyphosate to, to essentially stop the crop from going moldy. So I totally recognize why that has happened and why farmers use those practices, but I don't know what that impact would then be for us and for the food with our own microbes. Mm. So talk about
0: your brain, and you, I can't remember how you worded it, but you said something about you had an instinct, and it came from your gut. And, and they, they have discovered now there's lots of neurons in our gut, haven't they?
1: So again, it's interesting that I think you know in the 1700s there were people writing about the second brain. They didn't coin it the second brain; they just recognised there was thousands of neurons in the, essentially around the enteric nervous system. And they they did recognise that within a lot of psychological diseases there were things that were impacting the gut and vice versa. So many people have been have been writing about this for years and years and years. And it's only since the recognition of the bacteria and how the bacteria impact those neurons within the gut that's been much more recent, I suppose. But yeah, it's it's they're fa- they're fascinating. And well, the, the the vagus nerve, which is known as the wanderer, it's the longest uh, cranial nerve in your body, and if you've ever seen a picture of it, it's pretty amazing. But it really does go everywhere, and it's continually picking up messaging signals within the body. To see. It's almost a sort of an early alert system, and I think it's 80% of the information is afferent, so therefore it's you know what's being taken from the body back to the brain versus what the brain is sending to the body. So. I think that's pretty significant to start to understand that you know we are a lot more than our first brain, and that the signalling is you know we'll I think learning more and more about that signalling and the early detection signs of fight or flight maybe.
0: I wonder who it was that first used the phrase "I have a gut feeling."
1: Yeah, I, that's interesting. I, yeah, that's one to that's one to look up. Yeah, but the butterflies feelings in our stomach, we all know it. We've all felt it and yeah that's it in play really
0: before we started recording we were chatting and one of the things you were telling me about before the pandemic you used to mostly see people face to face and now you're doing a lot more online so how has that transition been for you
1: It's actually been easier than I thought. I really enjoy spending time with people. And I sometimes find that you, I I thought I was going to struggle because there's a a definite sort of relationship you can have when you're in the same room. You can pick up nuances, or at least I thought you could pick up nuances better. But I think actually it was Polly, who you've had on your podcast, who said to me that you start, I think there's almost a different signaling that you start to pick up when you're conversing in a manner online. Mm -hmm. And you sort of rehone your skills, I suppose. So it's quite good.
0: And you say, are there any advantages to working online?
1: Yes, I suppose, because you can work with people much further afield. And should you want to, you could take on more clients, I think, because the timeframes uh, are easier to work to. I don't know if you find that.
0: Yeah. And also from a client's perspective, I think it's a bit advantageous because they're not having to travel out to see you in the first place and so on. They can be more comfortable in their own home.
1: Yeah. The only thing I would say is particularly at the moment where I think a lot of people are struggling to see their GPs and a lot of people are seeing their GPs online. I think there's something, there's almost a comfort that people take by seeing people one-to-one because people sort of want to go in and get tests done. They just feel that they need to see someone i i can see that there are more people that want to see you face to face Mm. to be quite honest i have it's probably 50
0: 50. you do various tests and you've got different programs that you can offer people so if someone is interested in maybe they've got an ailment and they've been going to their gp and they just haven't been able to get any progress with it and they're thinking about seeing a functional medicine practitioner how different is it seeing a functional medicine practitioner from seeing as you pay
1: well as i think we spoke about before that one of the main things is this that it's a very different consultation it's it's quite lengthy but it gives that it, it gives time to listen hopefully i i listen and it takes in everything from childhood diseases through to where where that client is now and we start to look at various tests, whether that's blood tests, whether that's stool tests. That could be something called a metabolomics test, which is like the organic acids. Which is essentially, even with the, some of the best diets, it, people aren't always metabolizing things how they should. We can look at different aspects of increasing supplements. I, I am very much an advocate of food first rather than supplementation, and if I'm, I then tend to use wherever possible, whether it's medicinal mushrooms, or herbs, sometimes I will often quite often with many of the chronic diseases, there is a stress element and a requirement for people to look at lower their stress and changing their lifestyle, whether that's breathing, meditation, all of those things. So I, I can work with other people and essentially signposts to colleagues. And the difference is obviously that is, it is it's unlikely that if there's a chronic uh, disease at play, that There's going to be one pill and you're going to go away. It's sometimes a long process. And depending on where someone has come from in terms of exactly the shifts that they might have to make as a lifestyle, it can be advantageous to work with someone like yourself who can put um, things in place slowly over weeks rather than I think sometimes people can be slightly overwhelmed with a a big amount of such a huge drastic changes so Mm. it can be useful to work with someone who can implement those changes over time
0: Mm. and just to kind of clarify I guess what you were just talking about I mean I became a functional medicine health coach because I haven't actually talked about this on on my podcast I qualified as a functional medicine health coach a few months ago and our training was to work with functional medicine practitioners so the practitioner Makes the diagnosis, makes lifestyle change recommendations and everything. And then we functional medicine health coaches help the client actually make those behavior changes over the next few weeks, months, whatever it might be. Yeah. So just that's some clarification. And and I guess I can let everyone know as well. I'm I'm now working closer with Elizabeth. So if anyone is interested, if you've got various same ailments and maybe even things that you've done normal to you now, and they've just been putting up with for, for a long time. Yeah. Get in contact because uh, we can certainly help you with the whole diagnosis. And I can help you actually kind of the behavior changes that may be necessary.
1: Yeah. I just want to be clear. I actually don't diagnose. I'm not a GP, so I don't tend to diagnose, but what I can do is support. I help to support uh, a- any ailments that are going on. So with things like chronic diseases i will look at the root causes of that how that has manifested and looking at trying to unpick it and then start to put in lifestyle changes there's been much
0: difference between because you hear a lot of things now about it's functional medicine and integrative medicine and holistic medicine Is it all pretty much similar, or are there many major differences between any of them?
1: I would say it's very integrative, and um, I I absolutely, when someone has any red flags, or what I would consider red flags, I would be referring back to their GP. And in in an ideal world, it would be great to be working integratively with the GP. Some are happier to do that than others, but that tends to be led through the client.
0: Hmm. Have you ever worked with... I the benefits certainly of working with a GP and also maybe working with a dentist and, and maybe even an optician as well.
1: Personally, I can see that that's where the future of medicine is going to go, because there's a real recognition now that the oral microbiome has a huge part to play in the gut microbiome. And again, in chronic disease, you know, we can see changes taking place with Alzheimer's patients years before the first onset to the, the beginnings of the symptoms and understanding our dental health. And, you know, th- again, things like antibiotic mouthwashes that we've been using for decades and thinking that our mouth feels clean because it's germ free. I really hope that we have a slight change of understanding with how these so-called germs are impacting our health the better. Yeah. And not just for the worst. Of course, we've just been through something like COVID-19. And within that, there was a lot of fear driven down again, the germs and contamination and things like that. And I'm not going to necessarily start talking about that. I just think that um, we need to start to understand microbes as individuals better than we have in the past and not just assuming that they're all bad. I I think as most people now uh, are aware that We potentially have an antibiotic crisis coming down the road. And so I think being really careful about when we take antibiotics and not... And and actually, for me, it's a sense of how they're used in the food chain. It's it's not just how we're taking them. I'm so grateful to... (laughs) antibiotics being around in the past because of course you know lives really do depend on them and
0: the link i mentioned about optometry because they can see first signs of diabetes that's the first visible sign isn't it in the eyes
1: yes we did a little bit about it with the sort of the eyes and the iridology in a um, and p but yeah it sounds like you've uh, interviewed someone on that side yeah and
0: it's it's remarkable how their signs are visible in in vessels in the eyes and from what I understand is that information that the, the optometrist or optician or whatever sees isn't passed on generally to, to doctors and, and that can be seen years before it's just even aware that there's diabetes. You know?
1: I think collaboration of you know everyone coming together will be really helpful for the future. and to that end, I suppose I can see that having our own data can be quite useful as well so i'm not i'm not against sort of all you know everyone having their own data and and that being used much more collaboratively yeah. i think what's interesting is when we look at general practitioners from years years and years ago when people weren't so transient and lived in the same communities for many years they often had the same gp or uh, that their their family had that their parents had or that their grandparents had and so I think for GPs in those days, it was often easier to recognize historical, whether it was genetic patterns or whether it was just remembering someone's symptom from before, from when he treated them with tonsillitis or for whatever the history was. Mm. Whereas now it's, you very rarely see the same GP and certainly it's unlikely that you have the same GP as your mum and your dad and mm your brothers and your sisters. Yeah. So I think some sort of coordinated attempt to keep hold of that information would be useful.
0: Yeah, it seems a way off from that happening, but yeah, it would be great if that does. <laughs> we, we're changing the subject, I mean, Ash and I always ask every guest is, is think of a book that has really moved you in, in any way?
1: I'm really boring. I tend to read a lot of nonfiction but things like there's a lot of books that I've been reading about bees recently that I've been finding fascinating but actually what I really did enjoy was that something when you say something that moved me was a documentary I saw recently called The Biggest Little Farm. It's about this farm in the States and essentially the girl in it's a nutritional therapist and She was so excited about moving to this farm and essentially diversifying it and using biodynamic principles and using ducks to eat bugs and things like that. And I I think you'd almost have to watch it to appreciate it. But yeah, I I was sort of kind of moved me so yeah probably that is
0: that available on Netflix or Amazon
1: I think, it might I think it might be Netflix yeah it's called the biggest little farm and it's about apricot lane farm which actually still exists I don't know the intention of how and who filmed it and made it I think it's on the sort of regenerative farming side and just drawing attention to how systems can be how things can be looked at differently
0: If people want to find out more about you and get in contact with you via your your website, social media, whatever, how are they doing that?
1: I'm available on my email address, which is e, e for Elizabeth, at thegutbrain.co.uk, or my website, which is www.thegutbrain.co.uk. I'm afraid I don't do social media, which, so I fully rely on word of mouth. I, I don't choose to engage in it because I... I try to encourage people to put social media down and so therefore I feel I I, I haven't decided to go there myself, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. Finally, is there, is there a quotation
0: that comes to mind that you pretty resonates with you?
1: There are quite a few quotations, I suppose, that could come up, but recently, and I don't know why, I've been thinking of the poem by Rudyard Kipling, If, I don't know if you remember that. But it's one of his other quotes, I suppose, which is, I always prefer to believe the best of everyone because it saves so much trouble. And so for me, I'm trying to live by that, believe the best in people.
0: And is there is there any other reason, or is there any other thing that comes to mind why that really resonates with you? What is it about that?
1: Because I think sometimes people, we, we can often, if things that come up that aren't very good or things that happen to us on a daily basis we can often assume that that's because people are out there to get us or whatever and actually just believing the best in someone means that we don't even have to think about that we can just move on to the next thing and forgiveness there's so much in forgiving if people can just let go of things in immediately i'm not saying that people should forget but quite often i find with a lot of clients there's things that they're really holding on to and i think you've discussed this with other guests on your uh, podcast but thoughts really do count when it comes to health and it is in letting those things go that we can move forward
0: I've just actually finished reading a book called Humankind, which is exactly what you were just talking about.
1: Oh, I haven't read that, actually. It goes
0: really deep into that whole area fascinating book, yeah.
1: Ah, oh, I, shall, I shall have a look into that. Yeah.
0: Well, Elizabeth, it's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you for in, accepting my invitation. And it's been
1: nice. No, thank experience. you for having me on. <laughs> thank you. Sure.
0: Next week is episode 70 and it's with Magic Barclay. She is a practitioner at Holistic Natural Health and she uses holism, looking at the whole body and all the systems rather than reductionism as many doctors and naturopaths do. And she tries to treat the root cause and finding out why people get sick. And so we dig into that and about mold and toxicity and many other things and functional health solutions. So that's next week's episode, episode 70 with Magic Barclay. If you know anyone who gets some value from some of the information Elizabeth Gass and hargreaves shared with us today, please do share the episode with them and I hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits & Health podcast where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.